You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Across the country this weekend, thousands of abortion rights supporters rallied in March under the banner, Ban Off Our Bodies. Similar gatherings took place on Maui and Hawaii Island and here on Oahu. Several hundred people gathered in Waikiki to march in protest of the leaked Supreme Court opinion, many wearing green. In case people didn't know what the symbolism for green is and why we're calling it the green wave and people are wearing green off of our sisters in Latin America who courageously took to the streets for many, many years, decades, places like Colombia, Argentina, Mexico, where abortion was criminalized, women were jailed, women were even imprisoned for miscarriages. But time after time, women refused and demanded control over their bodies and the right to an abortion. And they won that right in those places, but we still got a long way to go. And here we are now in 2022, and they want to take us back. And we say, we won't go back. We won't go back. We won't go back. Among those who marched on Saturday included Mimi and Mary. It's just devastating that we're going back in time. And they're quoting times where we had slavery and where people didn't have rights and you didn't have rights if you were of color. So it's just ridiculous that we're going back to that time at 2022. I mean, I just can't believe that I had to pull out my old bumper stickers from the 80s and 90s. And so it's sad. It's really sad. I'm hoping that marches like these all across the country bring awareness to this issue and also voice how strong the public opinions are on this matter. For decades now, women have been fighting uh, the right to exist in this world without men controlling our bodies and controlling what we do with our bodies and seeking power over our bodies. So I'm hoping that marches like these will help the Supreme Court understand that we are not just going to sit back and lose our rights in this country. We are not going to roll over and let a landmark decision that was such an important win for women's rights across this country just be overturned. And one popular rallying cry among protesters was abortion is health care. In order to better understand how the field of health care would look without Roe versus Wade, the conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with Hawaii obstetrics and gynecology specialist Dr. Rennie Soon and Dr. Marit Perlman Shapiro. Dr. Perlman Shapiro completed her residency in OBGYN in New York before coming to Honolulu for a fellowship in complex family planning through the John A. Burns School of Medicine. She says that she specifically sought out training programs in states where abortion was enshrined in state law. There are some really fantastic training programs in red states. Like, you know, there's programs that are based out of the CDC. There's programs that have done phenomenal research in contraception, but they're based out of states that the access to abortion is very restricted and getting even more so. Um, and for me, it was important to go to a place where I knew that my training was going to be protected where I wouldn't have to stop learning how to do safe procedures in the middle of it because of a legal atmosphere. So coming to Hawaii, knowing that abortion was going to be protected here was um, a huge part of it. And a new cohort of doctors are starting residencies this summer in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as other specialties that incorporate family planning. Dr. Soon, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, how will the training of those residents be impacted in states that seek to ban abortion? Not a lot of people are talking about the aspect of abortion training and OBGYN training. The accrediting body for residency programs currently requires access to abortion training as a part of the program, um, any program that wants to be a fully accredited program. I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't know how they may alter that or how programs are going to adjust, but it could be that uh, OBGYN programs are, are no longer going to be able to fulfill that requirement, may not be fully accredited. 
that has impacts on these residents that are in those programs. There was a paper published recently in one of our medical journals that looked at the number of OBGYN residents who are receiving training in states that will very likely ban or severely restrict abortion access. They estimated that almost half of the residents in currently in OBGYN training programs will be in places that are either certain or likely to ban abortion. But the future OBGYNs will not be getting training in providing abortion care. And I don't know if non-medical people realize this, but the procedure to perform an abortion is the exact same procedure we do when someone has a miscarriage or a stillborn in either the first or the second trimester, exact same procedure. So the skill set to perform an abortion is very similar to what we do when someone is hemorrhaging after giving birth or having a miscarriage. So when physicians aren't trained to do abortions, they also may not be very good at managing these other complications of pregnancy. So it has a huge impact. This is going to have a huge impact on, on our future physicians, on our future OBGYNs. Dr. Perlman Shapiro, what are your peers saying, those who are receiving training or seeking training in this field? So I think those of us who are towards the end of our training are really grateful that we have already had the opportunity to to have this and that you know we're we're able to to graduate knowing um these life-saving skills. I think we are trying to strategize to figure out how are we going to help this this huge group of new students and and trainees that are really just going to be lacking basic reproductive health care and just basic OBGYN training. And then I think the other consideration that is sort of going around in circles is there's going to have to be more training for our emergency departments and the, the trainees in the emergency room um, because they're going to be seeing the complications that come when women take matters into their own hands. Dr. Perlman Shapiro, you described this procedure as life-saving. Many of the states that intend to enact abortion bans do have exemptions in place if an abortion is deemed medically necessary to save the life of a pregnant person. Dr. Soon, when might this exemption actually apply? I think that's what makes this really a difficult... The medical care that someone needs is often not black and white. How close to death does someone need to be in order for them to qualify under the you know, save or preserve the life of the pregnant patient. I mean, there are pretty clear cut situations. We've all, those of us, you know, who've been doing this for years, my colleagues and I have been in situations where someone was going to die if the pregnancy did not end in the next several hours, someone hemorrhaging from a placenta previa or another placental abnormality, someone in liver failure from severe preeclampsia, uh, someone septic um, with a, with a, you know, life-threatening overwhelming infection because of preterm ruptured membranes that are on medication to even sustain their blood pressure and they're in the ICU. So, you know, there are those situations that, you know, definitely clear cut, but what about someone, you know, with heart failure and pulmonary hypertension, for example, where there's maybe up to a 50% chance of dying during pregnancy because of the physical stress that pregnancy puts on someone's heart, is that close enough to dying? Do they have to be at, you know, hundred percent chance of dying? Or what about someone who's diagnosed with cancer and the chemotherapy or other treatment is going to endanger their, their fetus, their developing fetus, but to wait the entire length of the pregnancy means that the cancer is going to continue to spread, maybe, you know, advance their stage is is that close enough, you know, and, and who's going to make these decisions? I mean, am I going to, am I going to need to call a lawyer before saving someone's life? I, uh, you know, especially when there's criminal consequences, some of these states have criminal consequences for doctors who perform abortions or who, you know, they say aid in a bet. I mean, it's, it's, it's putting a chill on a lot of doctors, um, which we've, we're already seeing. I mean, my, my colleagues on the continent are already getting transfers from, you know, other institutions where patients were hemorrhaging or were, you know, septic because there was still a fetal heartbeat. The doctors were afraid to do anything. I mean, this has huge ramifications. And to be clear, right, this was a draft, right? So abortion is still legal in some form, in all 50 states. 
And, and again, I want to emphasize that early abortions are, you know, there are medications, they can be done safely. Medications are pretty accessible online. Um, so people who have early abortions or needing early abortions, that's pretty accessible. But the ones in particular, you know, beyond the first trimester, they're going to be a lot harder to um, to find someone with that skill, to find someone um, in that area. And, you know, I mean, these things are going to disproportionately affect black and brown people. They're going to disproportionately affect low income folks. They're going to disproportionately affect LGBTQ and others, you know, marginalized already by our healthcare system. Um, those are the ones that are going to have, you know, a much harder time figuring out how to travel, how to cross state lines, how to get to other places. We create these areas in the country where OBGYNs, family physicians, they don't know how to, how to end a pregnancy, how to perform an abortion. People are going to die. <laughs> People are going to die. And, um, you know, you're in a small town, you have a pregnancy complications threatening your life, you need to end the pregnancy. This, that skill is just going to become increasingly hard to find, um, even if you can manage to find an OBGYN, because that also is going to get harder to do in rural areas and states that ban abortions. But you're going you're gonna to have a hard time finding people that, that have the skill to, to perform that. How long would it take to rebuild our current knowledge base about this procedure? Oh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that anyone has, has like an exact number that they can give you. Um, I will say I'm very, you know, I'm very grateful to my teachers. Um, I feel like it's, it's a, it, it can, it's a relatively simple procedure that can, you know, a first trimester abortion can be done in a matter of minutes, really, even a second trimester is needed. And so I, I hope that those of us who are practicing in protected areas can guard this knowledge um, so that we can get it out where it needs to be. Um, but it's it's gonna be a real, a real setback and a real challenge to try to build that up. In the 80s, people you know, in the medical field were seeing that there was what they called a graying of healthcare professionals who could provide abortions. And so people um, acted and they started programs. They started um, the Ryan residency training program for residents in OBGYN to increase um, the training for residency programs. And then the fellowship in family planning was started in the 90s, early 90s as well to provide that advanced abortion care and complex contraception care, um, that ad additional training after OBGYN residency. Where we are now is in terms of the providers that we have and the knowledge and the skills that we have are directly as a result of those efforts that were, you know, kind of started in the early 90s. So, I mean, it took us 20 years, you know, to get to where we are now. Um, so I, I would estimate it would be probably at least something like that um, to recover what we're going to lose. We've been hearing from Hawaii obstetrics and gynecology specialist Dr. Rennie Soon and Dr. Marie Perlman Shapiro. They spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote following the leak of the U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion that would seek to overturn Roe versus Wade. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. Preventative care for women includes not just pap smears and mammograms, but also a focus on overall wellness, including nutrition, hormones, and more. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about a comprehensive care plan for women of all ages. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. The landslide victory of the Marcos Duterte ticket in the Philippines is still reverberating. Here in Hawaii this weekend, there were several events that brought out many in the Filipino community. Crowds flocked to a fiesta to mark the 20th anniversary of Waipahu's Filipino Community Center, better known to many as the Philcom. That's where we found Susan. She recently moved to Hawaii, and she supports the Marcos Duterte ticket. I'm so happy that uh, Bongbong Marcos and Sara Duterte won the uh, election. I'm really, really, really very happy. Why did you support that ticket? Uh, just because uh, Bongbong Marcos uh, is the descendants of uh, my favorite and idol uh, president of the Philippines. I know from the start that they are good. Uh, they are intelligent and they make so many development in the Philippines. You're not worried though about the, the history and the concerns that people might have about the, the dictatorship uh, under the Marcoses before? I don't think so because uh, for me, he is not a dictator. Uh, he's just like always elected by the people. He's not a dictator. He's just like a good and deserving Filipino president. And uh, you said that you were concerned with some of the changes that were made under Cory Aquino about the history of the Philippines? Ah, yeah, I was uh, then so much concerned about it because uh, I want that the true history has been announced or has been uh, talked to around. Because, you know, we don't want to erase the, uh, the good things that Marcos has did in the Philippines. Right? What do you think are the biggest problems that the Philippines uh, faces now? I just like the economy needs to be uh, uh, lifted up and then more study and then I think so that uh, the tandem of Bongbong Marcos and Sarah Duterte, they can do a lot to lift up the country again, once again. And a vigil took place on Sunday at Ala Moana Beach Park for those who oppose the return of the Marcos family to Malacanang Palace. Taas noo, mga kapatid, mga kakamping, mga kababayan, mga kasama, keep your heads up. Nilda Bolin was on hand for that gathering. She moved here 20 years ago. She says she was in prison under the Marcos dictatorship and had been one of many who received a partial settlement for human rights violations. Those payments range from uh, a few hundred to tens of thousands of dollars. So who did you support this election? I have to support Lenny Robredo. Why? Because if people know my, my background, I am a victim of the martial law regime. I was up in the hill for a year, imprisoned for a year. My husband and my family live as an ordinary family. Then my husband was killed by you know who. Because once you are an activist, you are an activist. So with Lenny, I saw a hope that we can change, that we can eradicate Marcos' legacy. But it's hard to love the Filipino people. And when did you come here to Hawaii? 20 years ago. And uh, why do you think there was such a landslide victory for the Marcos Duterte ticket? I still do not believe that it's a landslide because Duterte holds everything. He is the administration. He hires the people that will that will handle the, the counting. And then the turn out of the votes, I still cannot believe where they come from. So you're just very suspicious of the outcome? Yes, but I do not know that we can have, the Lenny group can have the evidence. And I think Lenny would rather just let it go and we'll have, we'll have to do something good for the people. So I think they will not fight it. They will fight the, the outcome. 
hope is always there. And then we will continue what we've been doing. As Lenny said, we have to love radically. And we also talked to Honolulu attorney Sherry Broder, who won a $2 billion judgment against the Marcos family in a civil suit on behalf of human rights victims. It's been difficult to collect as a family and the Philippines government have put up roadblocks at every turn. Broder says there have been disbursements for her clients, including a recent one. She reminds us of the human rights violations under the uh, regime of President Ferdinand Marcos Sr. We sued him for human rights violations, torture, murder, summary execution during martial law from 1972 to 1986 during the time of his military dictatorship. And we did go to trial in federal district court here, and we were awarded by the jury a $2 billion verdict. And we spent many years since then litigating in appellate courts in the United States of America, including the U.S. Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, state courts, California, Hawaii, and other places in our effort to collect on the judgment. We've also litigated in the Philippines. The Philippine courts have been very unfriendly and haven't been willing to enforce our judgment in the Philippines, which is very unfortunate because I think we can see in this election that the Marcoses still have access to a lot of financial resources. What are you most concerned about with the election results with the Marcoses back in power, you know, with Duterte on the ticket? Well, I think, you know, Human Rights Watch has, and Amnesty International have taken a very uh, strong view that voters should have put human rights issues first. I don't think that we can say that the Duterte regime had any any interest in human rights issues. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, with the Marcoses back in power, it's, in one way, it's very shocking that after a military dictatorship where, you know, 100,000 people were imprisoned during martial law for opposing the Marcos regime and 10,000 were summarily executed or disappeared or seriously tortured, that the son could be elected to be president of the Philippines. But the Marcoses have been very involved ever since we got our verdict and the jury found unanimously that they had engaged in human rights abuses. They've been very active in promoting and paying for a campaign of disinformation. That's been going on for a couple of decades. From what I can see, that effort has really jumped up during this election to convince the young people that Marcos, that those were the good old days when Marcos was the military dictator. The Marcos family, you know, after they were exiled, returned? They were all elected various times. Uh, most of the elections were for positions in Ilocos Norte, which is where Marcos is from, and the people of Ilocos Norte are very loyal to him. But now we're looking at, a, you know, a national election. And so I think it does seem pretty shocking that he would get elected. I, I don't understand why people vote for the next generation after a military dictatorship. You know, in Italy, the top vote-getter to the Rome City Council was Mussolini's granddaughter, and she she's very active in the far-right, you know, neo-fascist party in Italy, and I, I, just, I just don't understand why people would vote for somebody like that. But you can see she's following the footsteps of her grandfather, and I fear that Wang Wang is going to follow in the footsteps of his father as well. After Cory Aquino became president in the Philippines, after the ESA revolution, the Sending and Buy-In was set up, which was the anti-corruption Marcos Court. And their specific job, the administrative arm in the court, was to recover Marcos' assets and return them to the Philippines, to the people. Some of their assets were recovered, but they were ex at hiding their assets, just like, you know, oligarchs in other countries, such as Russia, who engage in a kleptomania society for the 
extremely wealthy. So I'm, I doubt that the sending him by and it's going to continue to pursue Marcos Gasso. When we last talked, there had been a tax case in the U.S., I think it was in New York, uh, where there was a, a famous painting that was sold, uh, a Monet painting. Uh, t- talk about that case. Well, we have pursued Marcos assets in various different forums, including here in Hawaii. We did pursue the house up in Makiki Heights that he lived in, and it was held in the name of one of his cronies, the Tokos. And we pursued assets in Colorado and Texas that was also held in the name of cronies, compost, and and other places. This particular uh this particular group of assets, which did include a Monet painting that was sold by for $40 million, was in a, uh, turned out to be in a warehouse in New York. And the way we found out about it is Imelda Marcos's former secretary, Vilma Bautista, was indicted by the uh, federal government for tax fraud, uh, for not paying any capital gains taxes on this painting. And she defended by saying that, you know, it was a gift to her from Imelda for her great secretarial work, which seems like a pretty good bonus for Vilma. Anyways, that case went to trial, but it, it led the federal authorities to find this warehouse in Brooklyn where there was artwork and cash and oriental rugs and several other very valuable paintings. So we intervened in that case on behalf of our human rights clients and settled with others who were claiming the assets and were able to make a distribution in the Philippines in 2019. We've made other distributions as well from other assets that we collected. And then the Philippine government itself, seven years ago, passed a law to compensate the victims of torture, summary execution, and disappearance during the Marcos military dictatorship. And our clients were given an automatic preference. In other words, they didn't have to go and prove their cases. If they had been on our list of class members, then they would automatically receive an award. The amount depended on the type of torture or summary execution, disappearance they experienced. They did also receive some money that way. Do you fear that other disbursements that are supposed to happen won't happen under this new regime? Well, we've been trying to collect in many different forums. We litigated in Switzerland. We went all the way to the Swiss Supreme Court to try and collect from the deposits that the Marcoses had there. We litigated in Singapore. We pursued assets in Hong Kong. You know, these places allow depositors to form their corporations in Panama, which is supposed to be secret. In Switzerland, it's against the law to give any evidence or testimony or provide any documents relating to a deposit. So we pursued Marcos assets all over, and the Philippine government has opposed us. So even though Marcos wasn't president any longer, still sending them by and didn't our efforts at all. And we've, you know, been involved in a lot of litigation with them. So I don't foresee anything too different. One thing, of course, is that we are pursuing a $40 million deposit at Merrill Lynch in New York federal court. And the Philippine government has opposed us on that. At one point in time, the Ninth Circuit had affirmed the district court's order transferring those assets to our clients. But the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and at that time, the Philippine government intervened in the case, and they argued that they were an indispensable party, but because they're a sovereign nation, they have sovereign immunity. So therefore, they weren't present in the case, and it denied them their due process rights, and they were an indispensable party. So although the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the award of the funds to us, they did not give the funds to the Philippine government. Rather, they sent the case back for further proceedings. Mm. So we're still fighting over those assets. That was Honolulu attorney Sherry Broder talking about the results of the recent election in the Philippines of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., also known as Bong Bong, uh, who lived here on Oahu when his parents fled the country seeking refuge in the 80s.
Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today looks at some 11th hour uh, legislative wrangling on a particularly controversial green energy project on the Big Island. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So the project that uh, we're talking about here is Huhonua. Right. The project is Huhonua. It's a wood-burning power plant on the Big Island, and uh, it's been hung up in the regulatory process um, in part because uh, the electricity generated by this project will be a lot more expensive than other uh, resources like solar and solar with battery storage. So that's one of the reasons regulators have been reluctant to approve it. Right. And your story highlights uh, some back and forth by the lawmakers uh, during the conference committee, um, you know, part of the session. Right. Now, I should add that the really the driver of this uh, process, uh, Senator Donovan Dela Cruz, who is the chairman of the Senate Ways and Means Committee, uh, denies that this has anything to do with Huhonua, although it would benefit Huhonua a lot. And the reason it would do that is the law essentially says each island has to have a certain percentage of its renewable energy uh, supplied as by firm renewable. What does that mean? It's generally something, a power plant that burns something, whether it's wood or uh, renewable natural gas made from methane um, or something like biofuel, like biodiesel. So that's essentially what it is now. And, it, and the bill says every island has to have a certain amount of firm renewable. 33% of its renewable portfolio has to be firm renewable. And uh, that proposal uh, had some pushback. Right. So early on, um, it went through the Senate. And in the House, the House Committee on Energy and Environmental Protection took out these uh, quotas, these very prescriptive uh, provisions that said a certain percentage has to be uh, firm renewable, and we can only have a certain percentage of other things like solar. And a lot of people, including Hawaiian Electric, the State Energy Office, um, other stakeholders, they all said, no, 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 we can't have these prescriptions. It's too hard to get to 100% renewable um, without flexibility, being able to put things together, and we're taking proposals from people um, to 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 make sure we have enough energy and it's reliable and it's cheap. And so we just can't have um, these sorts of uh, quotas and prescriptive percentages. And so while that was taken out in the process, it got put back yes. in. <laughs> yes. And it got, it got put back in the conference committee. The thing that was very puzzling uh, for me and I asked about it was two of the people um, who put it back in, were key in putting back back in, Representative Nicole Lowen and Lisa Martin, who were the chair and vice chair of the House Energy Environmental Protection Committee, they actually put it back in. So I couldn't find out why they changed their mind, but apparently they did. And so, yeah, I mean, folks, you know, will argue that, look, you're being too restrictive here. And you could hurt these other uh, uh, green energy efforts um, by just making it so narrow. Right. This well, this is the idea that it it just makes it too hard to do. Uh, again, when when prescribing these things, just makes it very difficult. It's a difficult challenge to get to 100% as it is. Um, Hawaiian Electric says, yes, we do think that there is a role here for firm renewable, and they're very glad to see that in the bill, but they didn't want the prescriptive language, um, especially a limit on solar, which this bill has. You know, but I can see how the uh, opponents of Huhonua, um, you know, would be very suspect of this uh, process. Um, right. So they're right. Exactly, Catherine. So sorry to interrupt. But yes, they're blaming. They're saying this is all about Huhonua. Again, the senator says it's not. He says it's about jobs. He envisions this whole industry of uh, renewable fuel production here on Hawaii, um, on the in the islands, making you know, tree growing trees and 
biofuel and other things. Um, again, the question is, will the governor veto it or allow this to happen? Right. So uh, I guess uh, we'll see what his vetting does and um, and uh, be curious to see if uh, the lawmaker, if he does veto it, if the lawmakers will, will come back to override it. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dean Slider, author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding nirvana in classic literature. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from UH Presents, classical pianist Tyler Ramos, performing 7.30 p.m. this Friday at UH Manoa Orvis Auditorium. Tickets at outreach.hawaii.edu events. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence to talk about new pictures of the dark heart of our galaxy, images of a super black hole taken by the Event Horizon Telescope. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we're thrilled to be welcoming the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips back to the show. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which continue to be visible in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, which of course means tricky conditions for stargazing. Well, we've got a story. It's all over the place. You can't turn around these days without hearing about a black hole. Of course, Chris has a little spin on that for us this week. What do you got, bro? Yeah, as you said, it's the big news in astronomy right now. The spectacular image of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, as imaged by the Event Horizon Telescope. This is the second of such images obtained by this international collaboration, and it reveals the dark heart of our galaxy in wonderful, albeit low-resolution, detail. In addition to the image, the data collected by the collaboration reinforces our understanding of the physics that govern our universe. Let's start with the Event Horizon Telescope and explain to folks how this is a combination of gear. Yep, as you said, it's not exactly one telescope at all. It is, in fact, made up of multiple instruments around the globe, including instruments here in Hawaii. The fact that these instruments are spread out across the globe effectively mimics a planet-sized telescope. And turning to the image, can you explain how, since you can't really see the black hole, what are we looking at? Well, this is interesting about this type of image. A black hole's gravitational field is so intense that anything caught in its grip can never escape, including photons of light. What we are seeing in this image is the glowing material, mostly gas and dust, around the black hole that is caught in its grip and is emitting light. Such frightening stuff you've got this week, Chris. And what's next for the event horizon? Well, astronomers want to add even more instruments to the collaboration, which will increase the fidelity of the data that is obtained. This means we could very well see a high-resolution image of our galaxy's heart in the coming years. Spectacular stuff indeed. It's Christopher Phillips, a fascinating episode of Stargazer. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And we'll be back next week, and you can find this at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Summer reading list just got more interesting. New York Times bestselling author Alexander Maxik 
has a new novel coming out. It's titled The Long Corner. Uh, Max Zick grew up in California, went to school in Idaho, and has been living on Maui with his family since 2017. It is his fourth novel, the first he's written since moving to our islands. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Max Zick recently to discuss the book and his thoughts on how tourism and the preservation of Hawaiian culture can coexist. You've written for several well-known publications like The New Yorker and Harper's I'm always just curious as to why people who have been so successful on the continent decide to relocate to our islands. Can you share that story with our listeners? It's complicated, but I was many, many years ago introduced to the poet W.S. Merwin, and he lived, as I imagine you know, on Maui for many, many years. And I really came to admire the way that he lived his life here and committed to to a life of writing and only to writing, or that's the way it seemed to me. He built a house, he rehabilitated a piece of land, and it just seemed to me the kind of perfect embodiment of the writer's life. And every time I visited him, I would become more enamored with, with both the place and with his life. They were both inspirations to to me and and to to my wife, who was also a novelist. You've been here for about five years. Did life here have an influence on your new book? Uh, ab- absolutely, yes. I, you know, I, I I've I have a difficult time feeling entirely at home here, in that I am constantly aware of my foreignness, and I question regularly my. My right, of course, I don't mean, you know, legally, but, but, but my right to, to be here, to live in a place that has suffered from so many various forms of colonization. And so I wanted to address, and it's, of course, this is a, it's a subject, I don't name Hawaii in this, in this novel, right. and the novel is not about Hawaii per se, but it is certainly a novel about, to some degree, what it, what it means to belong to a place and what it, and what it means to, to buy land in a place like this, to claim it, to have no connection really to the culture, while at the same time insisting on, on one's own culture as, as dominant. That sense has ab- absolutely been influenced by, by my experience here. Yeah, I definitely got that sort of vibe from your book, especially when your main character transitions from or, or takes the invitation to go yeah. to this island where these artists are living. Your previous novel, Shelter in Place, deals with issues like mental illness, family, and violence. Mm -hmm. The Long Mm -hmm. Corner seems to be uh, very much its own story, very, very different. It is your fourth novel. Can you share a little bit about what The Long Corner is about? Yes, it's it's about a journalist turned advertising hack who's disillusioned by his life in, in New York, and he accepts an invitation to... Uh, an artist colony, for lack of a better word, called the Coded Garden, and it's about his relationship with his grandmother and relationship with Judaism. He is he is Jewish born, but without any real religious affiliation, and so he is struggling in in, in a variety of ways with his own sense of purpose, his sense of identity, and comes to this place, much like Hawaii, and on that island there is a this artist colony run by a handsome charismatic man who has created his own world there with its its very strict rules, with peculiar rules, and a very specific idea of what is and is not art. And so it's about his experience, both with his past and also in, in the present of the novel, which is here in this place called The Coated Garden. The first few chapters of your book introduce us to your main character, Solomon Fields. You spend some time revealing his relationship with his mother and his grandmother, who are very different from each other, and provide yeah. for, for some really fun dialogue. Uh, they, are, they are both familiar and unique at the same time, at least to me. What's your mm-hmm. process for finding and writing and refining your characters? Uh, you know, it, it is it's the kind of thing I've, I've always approached writing fiction with the idea that the, the characters sort of arrive without sounding too precious mysteriously. Like, I, 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 cannot, I can't say precisely how I came to these two characters. In regard to the grandmother, she is in some way influenced by my own grandmother, but that said, 
she, my, my grandmother was, for better and for worse, not nearly so irreverent, not nearly such a, a, a firebrand. But they, they, the characters evolve over the course of time, and I sort of fall in love with these characters and let them drive the rest of the story. I know that that's quite vague, but it's, but it's, just, it's, it's just the truth. I think that's one of the great things, one of the admirable things about authors is they tap into this element of, of mystery and, and unknown and are able to bring something kind of out of nothing and, and into the world. Well, to me, that is the most wonderful part of, you know, of any kind of, of art, creating something out of seemingly nothing. This is one passage that jumped out at me, and this was something said by Solomon's bohemian grandmother. And I think it's very applicable to life here in Hawaii and now in our islands with tourism starting to pick back up. She says, don't ever be a stupid tourist, not in a restaurant, not in a bar, not in another country. Go out, go everywhere, keep your eyes open, be smart and curious. What are your thoughts on how visitors and residents can coexist so that we can have both a strong tourism industry and preserve Hawaiian history and culture. Wow, I feel, I feel utterly unqualified to, to to answer that question, except to say that that you know to begin with, one has to always have respect for the place they are visiting, and by respect, I mean an interest in the culture, an interest in the in the language, an interest in the food, and an interest in the way that people live. And it's so easy to arrive here, perhaps easier here than it is in, in many other places, to be completely isolated from the culture, from even uh, going to a, to a, to a store where, where local families shop. For years, I wrote for a travel magazine, and, and I, was, I was particularly aware of, of, that, of that problem. I've traveled a fair bit in my life. It's something I find so ugly, this utter unwillingness of so many people to to engage at all with the with the the people who live where they're where they're vacationing i think solomon's grandmother kind of hit on something that could be a good way to approach coming to visit here and and really a lot of other places yeah and i think you know one of the subjects of this book is that very thing I think a lot of people come here, particularly people with money, people who come here to, to live, not to visit, or both, I suppose, but people who come here to live, who have money, they come and they do more or less what, what, a, what a sort of bad tourist, which is to, to sort of close the walls around themselves and create just like Sebastian Light does, these, 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 these worlds within the world of, of Hawaii, or the worlds of Hawaii. Um, there are so many self-proclaimed gurus here. Mm -hmm. I've spent the, the vast majority of, of my time in Hawaii on Maui, and I'm struck by how many people have come here and invented themselves as experts in, you know, in X or Y, and they, they create you know, everything from, you know, from wellness centers to, to full-blown cults. And so often those things seem to, to exclude the local culture. And it, I, I suppose, you know, it's obviously, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily beautiful place to be. But this idea of, 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 of being experts in all sorts of things, except for the culture itself, strikes me as, as, as dangerous and, and strange. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten that has directly impacted your writing career? Finish. I think that is the that's the best advice I could give someone who is just starting out, and certainly it's the best advice I ever received. And it sounds obvious, but for so long I wanted to be a writer, and for so long I would not finish anything. I would start off with some brilliant idea, some extraordinary line. You know, I was so convinced of of my own talent, and. But to finish a short story, a poem, a, you know, a novel, God knows, it requires such discipline. The, you know, the, we, we romanticize the, 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 these, these acts of art making. And we talk, I think, far too much about the muse and, and, and you know, what kind of pencil we use and, and at what time we write and for how many hours and how many words a day. And 
if I had known, and I suppose on some level I did know, but if I had practiced what I knew, which is that I had to sit down every day and write and finish and then let people read what I had written and then accept criticism and go back and work at it and work at it and work at it. If I had started doing that earlier, I think I would have, I would have been happier and a better writer and, and perhaps a more successful one in those days. But it's terrifying. It's, I think people are at their core often afraid to finish because finishing requires the submission in some way of, of that work to an audience. And, you know, we're all terrified of being told we're talentless and or that or, or discovering that we simply have no we don't have the discipline to do the work. So I think the best advice I can I can give anybody who wants to who wants to write is to finish. I'm gonna take that advice. Thank you so much for your time, Alexander Maxick. Oh I, thank you, Russell. That was Maui resident and author Alexander Maxick talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Maxick's new book, uh, new novel, The Long Corner, uh, hits bookstores tomorrow. He'll be on Oahu next month for a book signing at the shop in Kaimuki. We'll have links to more info on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That does it for this Monday. Tomorrow, we learn about birds facing their own pandemic. We talk about the dangers of migration and avian flu. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.